Hey, Culture Hackers, it's Robbie Richmond and Jill Richmond. Hey. Hi, Robbie. How are you? Doing well. We are so excited for this podcast because we are at Rhubarb Studios in downtown LA here with Corey J. Hey, Corey. Good morning. Good morning. And we're just going to start with the weird, huh? Well, I wanted to I wanted to talk a little bit about our relationship with Rhubarb, but can we just start a little bit with the weird, Corey? Because I, I wanted to... Um, you walked in. On one hand, you had your Soylent. On your feet, you came in with an almost a hovercraft. You're wearing the exact same clothes that I've seen you in for days on end. So you're, you're, you're going with true efficiency in your life. I want to just... You, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, I found that there's a... <clears throat> So I found that, that in my day, there's not enough hours, right? yeah. and everybody finds that nowadays. But um, So I thought there's a way to deal with that and actually do things. So I started finding efficiencies in my life. And so um, things like Soylent, um, which is, I know you've talked about on the show before, yeah. um, you know, replacing food. Mm-hmm. So I started replacing food because it, it just made that my meals instant. Mm-hmm. Right? It takes me two minutes with a Nutribullet, and I've got a meal. While mm-hmm. everybody else is out to lunch for an hour and a half, I can actually get work done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, I tended to find that I was taking too long getting places and especially in LA where you're driving a lot of the time and, uh, you just, you know, trying to find parking is a nightmare. So we moved to, um, I ride a one wheel, which is, uh, basically one wheel away from a hoverboard, as you say. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it, um, it's created by, by a company in San Francisco. Um, and we have a, we actually have a, in the studio, we have a, a company that called Rover.club. And what they do is they sell all of these new kinds of vehicles. So Whoa. rocket skates and, and, uh, just all kinds of electric personal vehicles. They're called rideables. Mm-hmm. And so, um, putting those out into the world, it allows me to go to a meeting 10 blocks away, it takes me about eight minutes to get there and I can get back and there's no parking, no hassle. And I can, so this is sort of taken over from everything. Um, and then, you know, as you say, the clothing, um, about a year ago, I decided that uh, it was taking me too much time to choose my clothes in the morning. Um, and so I kind of cleared out my entire wardrobe, bought a set of black t-shirts and jeans and that's it. And, Which is very Michael Kors. And, and Vibrams. So my Vibrams are the only thing that my five fingers are the only thing that change. So I have, uh, I have about eight, nine pairs of these. And Where I do you get them? Out. I buy them online. Yeah. yeah, yeah, from from Vibram, they they uh they do these sort of limited edition ones like wingtips and canvas shoes and stuff, <laughs> so you can actually you know dress up a bit sometimes and not always look like a slouch in in sneakers. Yeah. Nice. So, and I'm looking at other things. I'm looking for. Um, I'm starting to do lucid dreaming, with the idea being if I can reduce the amount that I sleep and I can also uh, lucid dream while I'm asleep, then I can take control of my dreams and I can actually become productive while are, I'm asleep. Are you doing the day practices of lucid yes. dreaming? Yeah. 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 So, for those listeners who don't know, lucid dreaming is when you're in a dream and you actually realize it's a dream. So then you can do anything you want, like it's the holodeck. You can go find somebody and talk to them. You can do something. You can process. You can ask for whatever it is you want. Um, it's, it's fascinating. And how often are you having lucid dreams? So at the moment, I'm still new to that practice. That's my sort of latest iteration. So it happens maybe once, once a month I manage to generate a lucid dream. But yeah. now there's a whole bunch of tech that's emerging yeah. to help you get lucid dreaming, these different bands and these kinds of things. So I'm starting to investigate those and see what I can do to what make is, it more What regular. is some of the tech that you're using in terms of assisting lucid dreaming? 
So um, I haven't started yet yeah. uh, with them, but what I've been looking into is there's a few different eyewear bands that sort of track your sleep and, and stimulate you in certain ways to, to bring about that state of lucid dreaming. Yeah, I've got the Nova Dreamer one. Mm-hmm. You can pretty much borrow it indefinitely if you want. I've had no luck with it. But now they sell on eBay for like 600 bucks yeah. because you can't. It's one of the few that's actually REM detecting mm-hmm. as opposed to just a timer or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm expecting the tech to get better, um, and it's assistive. Like, if I, my problem is that I don't remember my dreams at all as it stands, and so I'm coming from a place quite far away where I have to move myself forward to a point where I can actually remember my dreams, yeah. and then I can move into lucid dreaming. So I come a little bit. Do you up. know the hack for that, for the remembering dreams? Which one? The about waking up like around four or five. Oh, yeah, yeah. You wake up early in the morning and you write them down immediately. And then you just go back to bed. And then you go back to sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I wake up at 4 or 5 in the morning, I'm not going back to sleep. (laughs) Right. That's my day. Awesome. Well, we'll see if more hacks come up through this. This this has been fascinating already. So, Jill, you want to explain how we got here? Yeah. So, I had built, and I've talked about it previously, I had built a company and a product two years ago that was really, ostensibly, it was in the... um, mobile payment space and for restaurants and made a lot of mistakes along that way and was approached to build something fairly competitive again two years thereafter with a different angle to it and having taken stock of all of the mistakes I made in the product builds really started looking for what can I do that was very different we outsourced our product build um we ended up having to go back and redefine all sorts of code. I wanted to I wanted to find a company that would help me build with a lean methodology and really look at a product team holistically. And um, I started asking around, and that's how I stumbled on Rhubarb, um, and that's how I met Corey. Um, so, Corey, I mean, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the way that Rhubarb, Rhubarb Studio works with companies specifically where I'm coming from, which was really in an ideation phase. Mm-hmm. So um, the studio works on a very basic philosophy, which is be around smart people, you know, build cool stuff and get shit done. So that's, and that's what we do all day, every day. And so how, we, how that manifests in different ways, and, and the one that we're talking about right now is what we call MVP as a service. So it's a minimum viable product as a service. So minimum viable product is something that's been put around in the tech world quite a lot over the last few years from lean uh, methodologies. And it just means to create um, the minimum amount of work necessary to learn the most and create value for your customers. And so you, it's basically applying the scientific me- method to business. So instead of going out there and trying to dream up something and take care of every variable and then build something and put it into the world and hope that everybody likes it, instead you keep coming up with hypotheses, you put something out there to test it, you learn something, and you keep going back and making that test better and better and better until you have a product that really sits in the market properly. So we found that while that was an easy philosophy for people to understand, it was actually hard for people to execute against it. And so uh, we've taken Lean, as many others have, and sort of refined it and adapted it in our own way um, and added other flavors of design thinking and agile methodologies and so on to it um, and then created it as a service so that companies could come to us and uh, say, look, this is what, or individuals, and say, this is what I'm dreaming of, or um, I really want to solve this problem, and that we could, in 30 days, with high efficiency, build them out an MVP. 
and start testing the market. So does that, I mean, that sounds amazing. And it also sounds stressful to me for you in the sense of someone coming to you with this idea, you've got something you've got to promise a within 30 days, uh, like a learning the scope or B learning the scope and, and committing to it. Um, is that something that you've got into a process so well that you can really nail that scope and how long it's going to take? So in the first week or so, we're really nailing scope mm-hmm. of the 30 days. We're kind of getting down into what it is. And a lot of the time, the idea that people come with is not what they end up with. Mm-hmm. And that's because we're, it's a process of learning. And so we don't, we, as I say, it's scientific. So instead of saying, hey, we, we think this is what we should do, so let's do this, we're saying, okay, this is what we think we should do. Let's go find out if it really is. We take it to market. We start talking to people. We investigate if people really want it. And then that changes the nature of what that thing is. So the hard part is, as you say, is making a promise in advance. So we promise an MVP, but we don't have any idea of what that actually looks like until we start the process. Got it. And, and Jill, as, as a product owner of this, coming to Rhubarb, does that, if I was in your position, I would feel both excited and scared to hear that. I'm both. Yeah? I'm not going to lie. I'm both. You know, and internally, I've spoken with a partner of mine in this process, and we both have said, you know, what if, what if we come out of this process and we're not happy with the process itself, and we're, we know what we want in this product because we've done a lot of market research, and what if we go head-to-head with product teams that don't necessarily know the market in the way that we do. So there's, there's, there's going to be conflict along the way. We know mm-hmm. that. So we are. We're, we're, yeah. we're scared as hell. You know, this is, so you're absolutely spot on in saying that. But I, I, think I, put tr- I think I put an enormous amount of trust and faith that you're building a process that I'm really curious about in addition to just the end result. Like I, I, I would love to have done this myself but I know that I didn't have the resources to do that myself. So you're, you're helping us do this at scale, truly. Yeah, and the process is a lot about consensus building. So it's not that somebody with domain knowledge coming into it will be ignored. Right? The whole point is that they're there to bring that knowledge so that we know where to go to test it. So that when, um, when for example, Jill makes a claim and says, hey, this is how it works in the industry, we just don't take that on faith. We say, okay, how can we test this? And we go out there and find out if that's actually true before we move ahead. So that way, it's not—it's never an argument about what do you think and what do I think. It's what actually exists out there, and that allows us to. The go word down "client" really- was was one that we kept fighting about. Are we a client? Are we a participant? Or are we co-creating this? So that was, that was that was one of the questions we kept going back and forth on. But yeah, it's um, you're a client, but you're also a stakeholder. And every stakeholder is as important so um, as your customer and as your team members. Like You all have to work together. And that's a, a basic philosophy, a collaborative philosophy of building, which is the way that everything is moving. As you know, you, you did a show on Holacracy, mm-hmm. which is very much built on those principles. We run the studio on very similar principles of sort of everybody not having fixed roles, but rather having certain things that are their main expertise, but then having a lot of other things that we have to do. And that's how um, our teams, our tech teams work, but that's also how the entire studio runs and and do you have a, a big bench that you pull from of freelancers are there is there a certain core of full-timers and then you expand and contract how does that work so um 
I, I teach at General Assembly. Um, I, I design their product course in, in LA and, uh, and I teach it and I also mentor their product and UX instructors. Um, and so we partnered with General Assembly. And with uh, GA, um, there is a large number of people and professionals who are coming out of there all the time. And we recognize that there was a need that those people coming out of there, and frankly, we also work with UCLA, UCI, USC, um, other schools, so hopefully soon Caltech. Um, there are people coming out of there who have a lot of knowledge and no experience. And so we wanted to build a possibility for them to get experience so they could go out into the workplace and be more confident and get jobs faster. So um, we pull on that a lot to pull them in. So if you think of it as two-sided marketplace, somebody like Jill comes and says, hey, I need to build this MVP. And these people out there are going, hey, I've got these skills, but I haven't had a chance to use them yet. So we created an environment of what we call immersive mentoring, where they're actually working on products. So it's experiential learning. But at the same time, we're pairing them up with professionals that we pull in from the industry. We have extremely alpha-level sort of mentors is coming in and working with them so that everybody sort of gets their it's a win for everybody right the studio gets more people more products like we judge ourselves by how many products come out of here that are successful um the the customer the client comes out with an mvp that works right and goes into the market and these guys come out with skills and knowledge so so jill this is kind of like if you went into this this hair salon and they said we're going to put somebody on you who hasn't cut hair before, but they've been trained. Totally. And we've got some mentors who are going to watch the whole thing, but they've never done this before. So and no, you think no, no. you know that you want the old Jennifer Aniston, but you might come out looking like Farrah Fawcett. We're going to tell you whether that's what men prefer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting way of putting it, except that we have in the mix, we do have sort of seasoned professionals working, you know, and they'll mm. be the one cutting the hair first. And maybe you'll let uh, the junior guy do a little trim at the end. Ah, okay. <laughs> God, that feels a little safer. <laughs> and so what, what have you done to foster the culture here? So um, by creating a space for it to, to work that way. So the way we designed the studio, we, we, we borrowed principles from the design school in Stanford um, who, who've worked through a very interesting way of, of um, a methodology of having a space that morphs to its need rather than having people morph to the space that they're in. Mm. And so every wall is a whiteboard. You can write on the glass. You can write on the tables. You can write on everything. Everything's on wheels, so it all moves and changes. We have walls that can move and shift as we need to create spaces and curtains and so on and it allows even the kitchen counters we can write on everything it's it's designed specifically to allow people to at every moment create exactly what they need so for example on on once a month we drop a big net down the middle of the studio and we have a what we call drone day where people come in and they we run classes to teach them how to build their own quadcopters and we have people come in and we teach them how to fly them so through obstacle courses and stuff like that because drones are going to revolutionize the way uh, a lot of things operate Mm -hmm. and it's important for people to understand that and the studio wants people to have access to technology so the space morphs to its need you know sometimes it's a cocktail party that we've had in here we've had daybreaker in here which we want to do again you know which is at 6 30 in the morning we had 300 people or 350 people partying inside of here i mean this is geek heaven with a beautiful view right it is it's the biggest playroom i've ever had yeah (laughs) nice and what 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 were you doing right before this so I came straight out of a consultancy. So I had a consultancy called Rhubarb, uh-huh. and we were working with a lot of big clients. So a lot of our clients are actually big companies. They're not all startups. Um, and 
I realized I was working out of other people's offices all the time. And one day I was in a friend's office and I looked around and realized I had seven projects in there and he had four. <laughs> and I went, okay, it's time for us to get a space. And um, I don't like doing things in small measures. Yeah. So we got 25,000 square feet in the tallest building west of the Mississippi. Did you venture fund this? No, this is all self-funded. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't, I, I always tell uh, the startups that are in here, don't give away what you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you don't need 50 million dollars in month six. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I'm going to tell people that I need to live by that. Right. Very cool. Can you go back to the product? What happens to the product teams? So once you hit MVP, talk a little bit about what you hope to happen with the product teams. So what happens is that um, we found I found that all through when I was doing Rhubarb as a consultancy, we were um, whenever I went in to help a startup scale or help a business form their own incubator or do any kind of work, um, they always lacked the people. Mm-hmm. So I ended up spending half my time doing recruitment basically to get the teams together. And then uh, they would walk away with the team and they would walk away with the product. So I decided instead of that being an incidental, we would just build it in. So what we do is we do the recruitment, we do the hiring, we do the work. And what we do is we tend to work with people beforehand so that we get to know them and then we know exactly whether they fit a product and we build the team around that. And then that way when we're done with a project, we've built, we hand you back both the product and the team to build it continue building it because no product is fixed anymore you're not building a website and then walking away and then going back and updating it six months later you need a team that's ongoing wow and is is the is the idea to to keep doing that and grow bigger or is this one stage of a larger plan you have so um, we have, we're definitely going to grow bigger, but the, the way that we work is that, as I said, our main funnel is creating businesses and we will create more and more businesses. We're going up to, we're scaling up to about a hundred a year releasing um, and we're in this big building and they want uh, tech businesses in here and they don't want to lease to individuals. They want to lease to us. So we're going to just start spreading into more floors into this building and then into other buildings where we're just releasing more and more tech companies into the world. And part of why I started teaching in GA was because I wasn't finding enough uh, good product owners in L.A. And so I started training. So I've trained about 120 now. And um, I've started now teaching them how to train others. Um, Because when you have product owners, they tend to drive uh, tech and innovation. So -hmm. the more of them that we put into the world in Los Angeles is the more the tech community in Los Angeles grows. And so I, as Rhubarb Studios, benefit from that as well. Got it. And how much does design play into this process? So um, design is a huge part of it. Um, design thinking is actually um, well integrated into what we do, which is approaching um, everything from a design standpoint, um, which means that the UX, the user experience side of things, is the core of, of how we approach things. Even though we're doing uh, lean and agile, we do lean UX, which means we're building in constantly this idea of how do you design this um, behind a mistake that people make about UX or user experience is they think that um, it has everything to do with, you know, nice designs and good wireframes and, and this kind of work. And actually, all really strong UX design has a big idea behind it. It has something that, that people can tap in that's visceral and that's emotional and that gets people to just feel like this is, this is the best thing in the world. So, mm. for example, people laugh when the iPhone came out and, the, the, you know, the, little, the classic example of it bouncing when it scrolls and these kinds of things and slowing down as it scrolls. They're like, oh, that's nice. But it's not nice. What it is, it's a release of dopamine in the brain. 
which makes you want to do it over and over and over again. It's addiction. And so that's what design does. Good design allows that addiction to happen and for people to feel good, you know, and that, that feeling of, of, of um, uh, that feeling of, of just pure happiness kind of connects directly to the brand and then you, they don't let go. When you're starting to build some consumer MVPs, is, do you go in there thinking, I want, we need to create a really sticky product from the outset? So we is go. That part of your, is that part of your thinking? Or? So we go. It's, so we tend to think less about the product and more about the people. So what we do is we go in there thinking, what's the problem that really needs to be solved? What's, what is this person really? They've got 24 hours in their day. How can we take some of the stuff that's taking a certain amount of time and make it take less time? Or they have this experience, which is an okay experience. How do we make that experience better? So these are their pains and their gains. And we figure out how, are, how do we design a product that directly taps into pain relieving or gain creating for them and creating a better experience. And, so that's, and that creates stickiness. Stickiness is driven by the emotional attractiveness of something that's you know somebody getting some sort of advantage out of it is why they stick with the product so so that's what we tap into so what do you think the difference is between somebody who's you know read all these books lean startup lean ux all these things like that and can talk the talk and actually do it so lean and agile are and things like that are their philosophies, right? More than anything else, and like all philosophies, you um, unless you understand them very deeply, it's very hard to apply the methodologies on top of them. So what a lot of people try and do is they just try and take the methodology and apply it without understanding what they're actually trying to do underneath it. So when I'm teaching class, or I now have, uh, Rhubarb is running a master series that's starting in a, a few weeks where we delve deeply into lean and we delve deeply into agile and pitching and all these things that people need to do, we kind of get to the root first. So we get to what's the, what are you actually trying to achieve? What's your vision? What's your goal for this particular process, right? And then you can build a process or a methodology on top of that that might be a variation. So... I guess the, the shortest way to put it is do what works, right? But you build that on top of philosophy. So I think the problem is that most people who read the books get the methodology and don't understand the philosophy behind it. And so the methodology doesn't always pan out or work the way they expect. Right, right. So, so for example, with the Agile Manifesto, one of the principles of that is that it's, it's um, people over tools and processes, mm-hmm. right? And that's where I've started to feel some some issues with holacracy, that sometimes it feels like it's really putting process above the people, mm-hmm. and that's where it can go off the rails if you don't have a really strong culture behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, are there examples like that that you've run into where people, they seem to be getting obsessed with the tool, but there's a, there's a core philosophy, like any examples of those philosophies that they missed um, by focusing on the shiny tool? Absolutely. So... Um all the time, actually. You walk into businesses, and I, I was at a business, I won't mention who, who have a, um, they were all, they had had agile coaches come in and coach them, and they'd done this agile transformation, and they found it just wasn't working. And when I went in, um, the main thing they wanted me to do was to figure out which tool they should be using. Should they be using Pivotal Tracker or Mingle or Jira or whatever? Um, and I I just had to sit them down and say, this has nothing to do with your tools. It has to do with your people. Like, we need to talk and figure out who these people are and how do they work and how do we make them um, you know, buy into the principles behind this so that they can then give them a way to apply it that works with the culture that you have or how do you adapt your culture. And so a lot of the work that I end up doing in those big companies is culture shift. 
right? It's making the, the culture shift to allow those things to happen. And the culture shift usually starts from on top. So I end up coaching C-level execs most of the time because their interaction has to change. Because when you start using Agile and Lean, and these guys call me in and go, hey, we want to be more like a startup. We want to be more lean. We want to run faster. And then you have to look at them and say, okay, well, get rid of all your managers for the most part because you don't need them anymore. The whole point of this is that people get work done and managers, if they exist, are there to get shit out of the way of people getting stuff done, right? And and that's a very, very big shift in most companies. Um, so it is about culture movement rather than it is about process and tools. And that kind of thing happens all the time where people just don't don't really understand what needs to change. But that's why we exist. Right. So So people oftentimes look to a manager, though, for... For, for coaching, for mentorship, they look for, especially in terms of going to bat for them with a new job post or a raise. In, in your type of methodology, where do all those functions go or are they not valuable? So what happens is that a lot of it shifts to different parties. So a, a lot of self-management happens. So, so it's sort of day-to-day and managing your own vacations. and manage, just, That becomes self-managed, right? So that has to do with culture and responsibility right. and all right. of that. Um, in terms of mentorship, you have different levels of people on every team. So they're within a team and within multiple teams, you'll have people having multiple mentors rather than single mentors who are a manager as such that they can look to who are of their same um, uh, cut from the same cloth. So, hey, we're, we're engineers. I can be mentored by five or six other men, uh, engineers in the business. And the funny thing is some of those engineers could probably learn something from me too. Mm-hmm. And so uh, mentorships tends to go in, in many different directions when you have these flatter kind of structures. Um, and for things like raises and all of that stuff, that's what's why HR exists, right? That's why you have that department. And I think a lot of HR has forgotten that role or rather they've been sidelined and they don't do a lot of that anymore mm-hmm. because the managers are, are kind of taking care of it. And I think that that's what HR is for. Like they understand that better than most of the rest of us. They understand titles. They understand money. So that's what we go to. But then Got on it. the positive side, you did say, <laughs> you know, one thing that you did leave out was this notion of having an ambassador, right? Mm-hmm. Some kind of ambassador and what is assumptively a a political organization Mm -hmm. and and it does it does are you saying that there is an elimination of the politics to some extent once there's a huge elimination of politics and i think um i mean we looked at this the other day spotify and the way that they work is really interesting so the, the way that they create um sort of coordination amongst groups is to have representatives of the different groups and teams and so on just meet for five, 10 minutes every single day. And that is enough to replace a whole layer of management because people are just uh, sort of communicating with each other. And out of these kind of structures emerges ambassadors, emerges expertise that people just know to go to. And it actually happens in our studio all the time. Like we know there are people that you go to for certain things and it, that's, that's just how it works. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. So what's, what's really exciting you right now? Um, so technology is, is, is sort of coming into its own in LA, which mm-hmm. is really exciting. So there's this wonderful shift that's happening where there's a whole generation of um, moneyed people and entrepreneurial thinkers and so on who are realizing that you know movies is not the only thing we can do in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it is shifting towards technology and specifically in downtown. I mean, I look out my window here and I'm looking at you know finance over there, fashion over there, uh, manufacturing, you know, construction, architecture, legal, accounting. All of these are departments and industries that are being shifted into technology and disrupted by it right now. So mm-hmm. we're right in the middle of it. I mean, I can just basically tell everybody I'm here and then watch them come to me. 
Um, and that's really exciting, not just for me, but for all the other tech spaces that are opening up downtown and, and pulling them in. So that's really exciting. Um, and we're going to find our feet in L.A. because now is just such a rich time in technology. You know, in 10 years' time, uh, we're going to have so much change because of synthetic biology and machine intelligence and, uh, you know, sensor technologies and all these things sort of coming together now that 10 years from now will look to us like um, today will look like 100 years ago looks like to us now. Right. So I'm fascinated by this concept around how it's not about having something great. Like, it always amazes me that um, American Idol, huge grossing tv show right was three networks turned it down actually best in the world executives and thinkers saying this won't fly this won't work we're not green lighting this and that that things that 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 are huge success weren't that way necessarily from the beginning and you know i i think about um take something like yelp you know, they didn't just put that out there. People were literally going door to door, like banging on doors and um, and and doing stuff to, to make that happen at a ground level. And what comes to mind in terms of this setup is that whole idea of the notion of the, the hacker, the hipster, and the hustler. So mm-hmm. the idea that the hacker is what we've been talking about with the with the programming and the coding. The hipster is the designer. And then the hustler is that real business development person who's going to make that happen. That if it's just a great design and a great product, it might it might not really even make it, right? Yeah. So, it, I mean, a product has to have a market, right? And you have to be able to access that market mm-hmm. and let them know that it exists. And so one of the great things that's happened over the last few years and um, is with the emergence of Lean, it, um, the 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 most uh, interesting evolution is crowdfunding because that's the ultimate in lean. You don't even build anything. You build a video, right? (laughs) And then you put it out into the world and then you see whether it takes. And if it doesn't take, you create a new video and you put that out there and you just keep doing that until you've found something that actually takes. And at the end of that process, you not only have um, a product, that's funded, but you also have your early adopters who are already on board. You already have a marketplace. You already have everything you need, not to mention half of them have told you how to make your product better before you even created it. Right. So, so, so I have an idea for rhubarb that you've probably already thought of. (laughs) So the idea is, um, um, startup weekend meets Kickstarter. So Kickstarter weekend, we're like in a weekend, you go from zero to Kickstarter campaign. So in a way, we're doing it. Uh, we have a series coming up of hackathons, which uh-huh. we call Hack for Humanity. I stole the name from somebody who's very... Uh, <laughs> um, but Hack for Humanity, where we take on problems, and we have those 72-hour weekends yeah. where uh, we bring in people to solve problems. So the first one we're doing, uh, we're talking to the mayor's office about the finalizing the date soon, is to, uh, for water, to mm-hmm. solve the water crisis in California, where we bring people from all over the place who come together, spend 72 hours, come up with um, all these ideas. But beforehand, we have industry partners, venture money, all that stuff in place. So any ideas that come out, straight to market, like mm-hmm. build them as quickly as possible and get them out there. So that's kind of that idea, except yeah. instead of running Kickstarter, we actually just sort of circumvent it and put the money in directly and build out. Got it, got it. And I, well, the answer was one big Brita filter for the ocean, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we got a whole big body of water right next to us here. I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> 
It'd be funny what there's this whole bunch of technology that exists. And so what's exciting me is not so much uh, um, the people coming in with the tech they already have. It's when you have 12 pieces of technology coming in and you start sort of making hybrids of them. And you realize that the thing that I created and, you know, and, and put into the marketplace, if I mix it with that technology, becomes a thousand times more efficient. And it's efficiencies that we lack. We have the technologies to clean water and get it. What we lack is the efficiency. It, it takes too much energy. It takes too much resource. It takes too much something. And so um, as we head into a time where energy is easier to get um, and we have abundance in that, then suddenly those things don't become such big problems. But you need technologies in place that can take advantage of those things. Sure. Is there, is there some really interesting technology that you're hoping lands in front of you or some, some interesting ideas that land in front of you in some of these boot camps that you haven't seen yet? For sure, a call out to some of to some of the ideas that are out there that should really come to rhubarb for for a boot camp. Yeah, so uh, products actually start with people rather than ideas. Funnily enough, and so uh, what we want is the people who are energetic and um, driven to create product, and then we can work with them to help find what exactly is the right product for them. Um, a lot of people come in and they kind of go, hey, I've got this great idea. And you talk to them for five minutes and you realize that they're extremely energetic, driven, passionate people who want to solve a problem. But they've just locked onto a problem that they're not really that interested in. It's just that they're that's the one that happened to pop up at the time they made the decision to move into this direction. And so what we do is we work with them to find out what's something they're really passionate about. Because if you can solve a problem with and build a product around it in an area that you're passionate about, your risk goes way, way down and your success possibilities go way, way up. Hmm. So people who are passionate about building product, that's what we want. Bring them in here. We'll help them find the idea. If they already have an idea, we'll help them refine it and put it out there into the world. That's what we do. Very cool. How, how public are you with this stuff? Do you, do, you, do you blog and share about the ventures that you're up to or does it all have to be really kept secret? It really has to do with the ventures that are in here. So uh, we, when we deal with a lot of Fortune 500 companies and stuff like that, they keep things fairly quiet, right? They don't necessarily want everybody to know about it, although the people, the other people in the boot camp know about it. Because one of the benefits of boot camp is that you, even for the very um, experienced, is that when you normally take a job, you, you do one product and then you do another one and then you do another one. So your learning is sequential. But when you're in a boot camp, you have six or seven projects going on around you all the time and you're continuously reconvening and hearing what everybody else is going through. So you get comparative learning. So it's an efficiency in learning. You learn a lot more, a lot faster in the boot camp. And so when we have products um, within that, everybody in the boot camp knows where they come from, but we don't necessarily publicize the ones that don't want to be. Um, for the ones that do, who are up and coming and want the world to know that they're they're in creation, then we help we boost it we put it in social media we, we do whatever we can to, to push them can you I, I maybe i'm not sure we clarify this what exactly the boot camp is so it's 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 many different people from many companies for for a few days so the boot camp is 30 days to mvp Oh, okay. It's a specific how is it, occasion th- where we bring in a bunch of different uh, companies. Some of the ideas come from inside the studio. Some come from outside, like Jill's. Um, and we start on a particular day and 30 days later with various teams. And then 30 days later, we have a bunch of MVPs. Oh, and you're doing them all at once, mm-hmm. all at the same time through those first mm-hmm. 30 days. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. It's, it's intensive. It's really exciting and fun. Are there crazy it's- late nights here, too? No. 
We actually encourage good uh, work home balance. And so at six o'clock, we tend to put music on and pull out the beers and get everybody to stop and then go home and be with their families and walk their dogs and do that good stuff. Yeah. Do you know Patagonia, they they lock their doors automatically at 8 p.m. If you don't get out of there for the weekend, you are there for the weekend. So you have to get out by 8 p.m. or the doors will literally lock and shut. I was looking at an office where they um, all of the tables, are these, they have these huge massive tables um, that with the computers on. And they, they basically, at the end of the day, they rise into the ceiling. They get pulled up at 6 o'clock. So all the no computers way. go into the ceiling, right? And so you literally cannot work anymore. Everything goes away. I thought that was brilliant. That's hysterical. And what kind of other, I, you must have other events, because the first time I heard about Rhubarb was at Metal when they said there was the Bitcoin event here. Right. So you have other events going on. Sorry. We do. So we have a series of conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a shout out to a, a small company called Curative, who, um, who are really good at putting together conferences, and they put together the Bitcoin conference, and we're going to be putting together another one on rideables, which are, nice. you know, those electric vehicles, and then we're looking at other subjects that are sort of cutting edge synthetic biology, other things like that, um, and creating a series of conferences that will be annual and um, running here. So we do do that as well. Um, we love hosting events. We host a lot of meetups, so people who do meetups in technology and so on, we just bring them in because we just like having those people in the space. The space is about community. Right. Were you at the Bitcoin event? I was, for the whole day. Really? Uh, can you give us a little summary? I was dying to go to that, and I just have no idea what to think about Bitcoin right now. Where? What can you tell us? So uh, the event was the future of digital money, mm-hmm. essentially, and... Um, and so it looked at Bitcoin and, and the things around it, the blockchain. So during the event, we actually covered everything. We talked about security. We talked about customers. We talked about business to business. We talked about banking. We talked about like everything that was in the ecosystem of digital money. Um, what com- came out of it is that the blockchain, which is the technology at the core of Bitcoin that allows it to happen, which is it's all sort of um, peer-to-peer security. So it's got no centralized sort of uh, um, management. Um, it's completely decentralized, but secure communication. Um, it, that that's going to change the way that economies run, run themselves. Like that's, that's the idea. So it's not necessarily Bitcoin that's going to do it, mm-hmm. but the idea that the blockchain technology is the thing that's going to change um, how, how we, we manage money, basically. Uh, it, it's an interesting democratization of, of the technology around tech, uh, around uh, money and economics. Yeah, I wonder about the technology with it, too, because I know that in order to really maximize uh, Bitcoin, they develop these computers and processors that are built for it because it takes these processors. That they're not doing web browsing. They're not doing all these other things. Yeah. It's just focused on that one blockchain. Mm-hmm. And if, if that's driving technology, is there some type of cultural metaphor of that <laughs> level of crazy, intense focus on something? Um Yes. <laughs> In a word, yes. Yes, it is there is that is exactly how things work, right? It's um nowadays what's in- interesting about that is we're we're sort of and people are very puzzled by it when they look in from outside. They go so basically the computers are basically crunching away at numbers and that's creating value somehow and we're expending energy for it to do that and and how does that create value? Without going into the technologies it's really hard to explain how that makes sense. Right, right. But it's gonna, it's, they're going to run out of Bitcoins eventually. And so will that reduce the need for having these server farms that verify all the transactions? And if I'm not going to be able to get more Bitcoins, why would I run that server farm? 
Um, I think that there, I think one of the interesting things that spin up that are spinning up already is that other currencies are coming up, yeah. other digital currencies, and so we're going to see it sort of, uh, as most things do, they fracture before they coalesce, and so we're going to see some sort of fracturing in in that domain where you're going to have all these other currencies popping up, and then the exchange rates between them are going to be interesting. And what's what's really interesting is none of them are, are nationally bound. Right. right, so they're they're all international currencies that that can pass back and forth between each other, and then how do you regulate those exchanges, and how do you make sure that the exchanges are decentralized as well and not controlled by any one body? Um, so that's that's kind of the next step, and then out of that, who knows what's going to call us? And you know, we the the cool thing is we don't need to know. Right, we can we can just do this and watch how it evolves. And are you involved with it? Do you accept Bitcoin as payment right now? So we are working with two different companies. We do accept Bitcoin for certain things. Um, we are working with a particular company to allow recurring payments, which doesn't exist yet in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. um, so that we can people can pay their membership fees here by Bitcoin. And um, in by the end of the year, we're going to be offering salaries to our employees in Bitcoin. Got it. And what's happening with the tax regulations with them? Are the, is it just basically they rely on you to report it since they can't find it anywhere? Yeah, um, there's a lot of com- conversation about how that's going to shake out. And yeah. I don't really know what the answer to that is yet. You know, But we would like to be at the forefront. And, and um, I always like the idea of trying things out um, rather than just discussing them till the end of time. So it's more it's, it's easier to political put in- candidates can accept Bitcoin as, yeah. as donations. Well, yeah. 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 Talk about regulation, but yeah, yeah. What does that What does that do for yes? Um, let's not get into politics. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think um, the, the digital money is, is going to be a really exciting sort of shift. But I mean, every every technology, even the rideables, is a really interesting shift. Like we went into the 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 mayor's offices, their planning office is coming out with a, a new re- report of how to classify roads and a new classification, a way of doing roads over the next 20 years. Like, how is that going to evolve? And we went in and um, after talking to them for a bit, we've got convinced them to change bike lanes into rideable lanes because they need to allow for the fact that because of technology over the last two years, you have a whole new class of vehicle coming out and you're going to have millions of these on the road and they're not bikes and they're not cars and they're in between. And... Um, and so I think when you look at things in, in that way, you start seeing that there's huge infrastructural change that's going to happen, that is happening around us. And we can get ahead of it. Right? One of the things that, that's interesting is that legal and, and politics don't move at the speed of technology at all. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's, I think it's incumbent a little bit upon the technology companies to help that process along, right? And to, 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 to actually work with cities and work with organizations to, to help them move faster. Um, and, and, and enablement works in any industry, including those ones. Got it. I was, I was just reading this Psychology Today article that was talking about how um, it was this woman parapsychologist who studied all these paranormal activities and then studied um, LSD effects and from a very, very clinical standpoint. And she was um, she, she coined this term called TREAMS, which is, comes after memes. It's like essentially memes that are technology propagated. And what she was talking about was this idea of we're, we're getting to part of this network and that maybe this network has its own intelligence and this idea. And, and I kind of feel it in the sense of, you know, Facebook is humongous. I mean, billions at this point. Right. And um, it, it, I first thought of it as, oh, this powers my social network. But then I'm realizing, wait a minute, we are powering 
Facebook. We are handing over all our people. We are handing all the photos. They say, oh, here's a photo book for you. Here's a nice little photo book, but you're going to power our, our multi-billion dollar international operation um, in God knows what ways. And I'm, I'm curious your take on all this. I don't think we've reached any sort of network intelligence yet, mm-hmm. but I sort of feel it's inevitable mm-hmm. um, by this, the quantity of information that we're putting out into the world and the fact that um, our machines, by the very nature of how we're designing them, um, have more and more intelligence built in and the power is getting fast enough that it's it can be equivalent. And within 10 years, you'll be able to buy a computer that's as powerful as a human brain for a thousand bucks. And so I think it's inevitable that we end up with smart networks that understand um, the idea of, of um, memes <laughs> that move through technology is, is I mean, it's self-evident, right? It's, it, that is what social is now. It, it's the idea that you can communicate anything anywhere in an instant. Um, it, one of the, I, I saw a comedian on stage that was making this joke. He was saying that, that if, if an alien came down and they saw us, they would think, oh, these, these little devices, these phones are running things because everybody, they'll, they'll do something and they'll get the human's attention and they're like wired into them through their ears to get commands and just every now and then they're, they're buzzing and telling it to do something. Like, you know, and it kind of, to me, reflects back to this idea of the dopamine hits and the dopamine rushes. And I know that's great for adventure and technology, but are we creating a society of essentially drug addicts through all of this, well, I think it. it we, well, we've always had that society, but I think that the, the 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 phones and the devices are very temporary, right? It's a very very short um, part in our history when we look back on it, because I think we're getting to sort of em, sort of embedding things in ourselves and empowering ourselves in different ways, so that we're directly connected to our technology, so that there isn't a separation that much between ourselves and technology. It's sort of part of one of the same thing. An interesting uh, example of that is. Nowadays, for a couple hundred bucks, you can buy a kit where I can put on an electrode on my head and you can put a little thing attached to your arm. And if I think, move your arm, your arm moves. Right, costs about one hundred and fifty bucks, one hundred and seventy-five bucks. Right, and kids Don't can look do at it. Me like that. Right, and so that's that's kind of where that's kind of where we've reached right now with neuroscience, and 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 that's just a, a small household example. So imagine what's going on in the labs around the world. Well, imagine what the government's doing to us right, right now. <laughs> you know? So I think I think that I mean that's one of the big scares and the big arguments with uh, what Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamantes talk about and this sort of connectedness, you know, the super AIs and all this kind of thing. And I think that the the thing is that. We're embedding all of this stuff into ourselves. There's, these sensors are now on our wrists, and soon they'll be in our wrists. And then, you know, this communication device is external to us, and then it's internalized. And then gradually it just becomes there's, there's, no, there's no lines between who we are and what our technology is. Right, right. Well, we got to wrap up pretty soon. It's been so much fun. I'd love to ask, are there any really fascinating books, articles, websites that's, that's, that's on the fringe of cool that you could tell us to look into? So... I think um, a book that recently came out um, is Tomorrowland, and I would mm-hmm. definitely look at it. I, I mean, I, I, it's just amazing. Uh, it's it, it's um, what's his name, Stephen Cafton, that um, basically tracks when science fiction becomes science fact. So he's looking at all these moments where the fiction of our past has become a reality, and he's uh, this Tomorrowland sort of pulls all the greatest hits from and, and updates them and, and looks at them in an interesting way. And I would definitely recommend that as a as a great way of seeing what what happens. Um, another great blog is Peter, Peter Diamantes, thinking about abundance and and that world. Um, and um, I think those two are enough to sort of whet everybody's appetite into as to what the future holds. Fantastic. Fantastic. Awesome. Anything left, Jill? 
No, I mean, I'm looking outside an incredible view and thinking that the future is is right here in this space at Rhubarb, which I'm super excited to, to be joining. So, um, so no, that's it. Great. Corey, anything, anything you want to mention? Any URLs? Anything that you're looking for in case somebody's hearing? that? Uh... If you uh, want to find out about the studio, uh, go to rhubarbstudios.co and have a look around. Um, we love hosting events. If you have events, we, we're happy to have more members in our space and working with us. If you're intense and passionate and, and smart and like doing things, this is, this is the place to be. Um, and of course, uh, whether you're a small business who wants an MVP or a massive studio or organization that needs an incubator or doesn't, wants to act more like a startup, come to us and we'll, we'll, we'll work with you. We'll co-create. We'll make something amazing. Awesome. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for being on the show. And everybody, you. if you're listening, we would love to get your, your ratings and feedback um, up on iTunes. You can see more episodes at culturehackers.com. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Robbie. Take care. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. Bye.